If you would uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, part of the passage that, uh, that Richard just read, uh, we're going to, going to be looking at uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 40 today. I'll give you a minute to turn there. God has allowed us the time and the space of three sermons so far to go through the main text in the Old Testament of the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31. Uh, This is spaced out over, I think, back in last October when I preached the first uh, part of this. We've observed each of the four verses in the New Covenant, and uh, those are in verses 31 to 34. So just to set the tone here, let's read 31 to 34 again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So as we've gone through um, and and made reference to many of the connected verses, uh, because there are a lot of network of connections to this passage throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, um, but we've looked at many of the key passages over the, over the last few sermons. Last time in covering verses 33 to 34, we saw the seven I wills that, that I just read of God, which detail his promises to Israel and Judah for the future and confirm that he is the lone mover in the new covenant. It's nothing for Israel to do except just to accept his gift and, 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 and enjoy it. We only looked at New Testament glimpses of this new covenant, which was inaugurated by Jesus Christ. The benefits locked in, in a sense, by his death, resurrection, and ascension. Faith in his death as our substitute is the basis of the forgiveness of sins of all those he saved on the cross for all time, promised here by Jeremiah for all who believe, and and then his sending forth the Holy Spirit after he had ascended is definitely connected to God's promise to put his law within his people's hearts. Those are are inescapable connections that you you can't have one without the other. One of the the vexing issues we run across when studying the New Covenant, uh, at least I have, is trying to nail down when it will come to full fruition. And I've mentioned this in each of the three sermons so far that I'm going to attempt to make understandable my own position on this question, which I'm going to do a little bit today, but I believe I'm going to have one final sermon where I'm going to wrap everything up, and that's when I'll really uh, try to make it very clear, although I will mention it tonight, today. Uh, I'm convinced that the position can be defended from Scripture without restoring to some theological agenda or trying to alter the object of God's promises very clearly in what we just read in verses 31 to 34. The promise, the covenant is with Israel and Judah. By changing the subject from them to the church, there's a position known as replacement theology. In this theological position, typically taken by covenant theologians, Proponents argue that the church has replaced Israel as a recipient of the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament, including the New Covenant. And as a result of Israel's rejection of her Messiah, Jesus the Christ, and they are as a result 
now permanently closed off from any of the promised blessing as a nation, although on an individual level they can be saved by accepting Christ as Lord and Savior, just as Gentiles are. The expression uh, often used for replacement theology is called supersessionism. And it comes in a couple of forms. The first form is that Israel has, in some sense, always been the church. And I've actually heard this argument made in a, in a, in a debate uh, a few years ago. And only in New Testament times has this church been revealed, although it already existed, as a solving of a mystery in Colossians 1, 26 to 27 and Ephesians 3. Some go as far as to say, and I've heard this too, that Adam and Eve were members of the first church. To me, that's a ridiculous statement. Secondly, the position usually taken with regard to supersessionism is the one stated above, that Israel has been locked out of God's future blessings forever because they rejected her Messiah. And they certainly did. They did reject him. Matthew 12, John, uh, the end of John 11, they rejected him uh, very clearly. Uh, and then, of course, crucifying was, was the obvious one. Uh, but Israel, in this sense, keeps the curses of God because of that, but the church now inherits, inherits the blessing blessings promised to Israel. That, that's, that's the two main positions of that viewpoint, which I reject. I reject both of these arguments in a commentary series uh, known for excellent exegesis, which is the Crossway Preaching the Word series, excellent commentaries. Philip Graham Riken comments on Jeremiah's new covenant passage this way. He says, Jeremiah's promises were fulfilled with the coming of Christ. There is only one new covenant people of God. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. He's talking about Galatians 3.28 there. In the new covenant community, there's no black, no white, no brown. There's no rich. There's no poor. There is only one new covenant people in Christ. Now, that sounds like a pretty good statement, except when you understand his position, it's a subtle way to depict the very thing I've been talking about, replacement theology. The new covenant was not fulfilled in Christ at his first coming. It was inaugurated by his first coming. In other words, the blessings began to be available, in this case to the church. But the, the, full, uh, the full ramped uh, new covenant is not going to happen for some time in the future yet. The passage in Galatians 3.28 that he is citing is not really about the new, new covenant. Many of the elements of the new covenant were not present in the Gospels, and they're not present now. The one new covenant people he's talking about here, in the context of what he said, is the church. But the new covenant is clearly about Israel. So as I've pointed out a few times before, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is expressed, expressly given to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And you can't escape that fact. You have to look at that and say, that's what it's saying. Why should I apply it to somebody else? Although it can be, and I'll show how that, how that works. So let's read now uh, verses 35 uh, to 37, and we'll begin to take a look at, uh, at this. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that as waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. By this fixed order, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So technically, these verses adjacent to the new covenant is a separate but connected prophecy 
are given to Israel on the heels of the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah, which promise a rebellious, sinning nation, exile, destruction, and doom. Then chapters 30 to 33 now interject these promises of eventual comfort, restoration, and self-dwelling, all of which are necessary components for the new covenant to be fully activated and enforced. They all have to be in place. Otherwise, it's, it's not fulfilled. It might be inaugurated, but it's not fulfilled. These verses remind me of the situation that Paul encounters in his transition from Romans 8 to, to 9. Paul has promised in chapter 8, and we're all familiar with it, I believe, uh, great blessings to believers in chapter 8, and in this case, the believers of the church. Especially in verses 26 to 39, after seven chapters of revealing the wages of sin and its worldwide nature present in everyone. Then in Romans 9, 1 to 6, here's what he says. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Listen carefully to verse 6, because this is the key for chapters 9 to 11. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Paul here is answering an unasked question. The question is, wasn't Israel promised these same sorts of blessings in the Old Testament, and yet they never received them because God rejected them? Won't his New Testament people, meaning the church, always be in danger of being rejected as well? How can they accept this promise? Verse 6 is the key verse to not only Romans 9, but also to chapters 10 and 11. These chapters reveal God's plans for those who will inhabit his kingdom, which is still not here. His sovereign election, his use of Gentiles or the church to make Israel jealous, he, he really makes clear in Romans 11. So if you want to turn to Romans 11, or actually it will probably be up on the screen, I guess, uh, verses 1 to 12. Here's what Paul is saying now at the end of this section of three chapters. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed their prophets and they have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says... Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their future means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And then skip down to, to verse 25. 
Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospels, the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they may also, um, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So this, these passages don't sound to me like Israel has been permanently real permanently replaced. Now, we may think that because of what they did to Christ, they deserve it, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible is telling us very clearly here that God has just set them aside so that he, he can use the Gentiles being saved to make them jealous. There's a point to that. He's not just trying to make them jealous so that he can laugh at them when everyone else goes into, into eternity in heaven. He's, he's doing it for a purpose, and hopefully that purpose will become clear as we go through here. So now back in, uh, in verse 35 again. Thus says the Lord, this is in Jeremiah 31, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. This verse is really introductory to what follows. So starting with the prophetic formula that we see often in the Old Testament, when a prophet is speaking directly what God has instructed him to say, he says, thus says the Lord. This is directly from God, not a commentary by Jeremiah. Here in verse 35, God is establishing who he is, his credentials, what he's done in his creation of all things. And I'm reminded here of Romans 11, 33 to 36, and I'm already there, so let me just read that. This, this is actually my favorite three verses in the entire Bible. I know I say that a lot. This is my favorite. This is my favorite. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. That last verse, for from him and through him and to him are all things, it's very important that we understand that. Everything God is doing in history, throughout creation, right to the end of the world, is for his benefit, for his glory to be displayed. He's reminding Judah and Israel here in verse 35 of the fact that he is the one who is making these promises of, of new covenant blessings so that they can trust these blessings will come and they, they will be around to experience them as a nation. It's important in this case for them to know this because Jeremiah earlier prophesied exile and doom for them in the very first 29 chapters of Jeremiah. That's what he's, what he's preaching to them. And there may be real skepticism whether or not they'll actually see these blessings because they know they don't deserve them. But this is a promise for the future. God, by Jeremiah, had led up to the new covenant promises in 31 to 23 to 28, which we won't read right now because Richard already covered that as he read chapter 31. But they promised a restoration to the land, as well as a promise of individual culpability for sin, no longer in a national or a filial way. Uh, so they're, they're certainly deserving of, of whatever they get from God. There's no question about that. But God is showing his grace here in, in establishing for them this new covenant that he is promising to them. 
So verse 35 covers information that's also written elsewhere, certainly in Genesis 1 uh, as the basis, but also in many Psalms at the end of Job in chapters 38 to 40, as well as throughout other prophetic books, uh, all of them just talking very clearly about God's, uh, God's creation and, and all the, uh, the amazing things that, that he did and, and even the amazing way that he did, he did it. Um, so it also establishes here the power of the one who has created all there is. He's the one making this covenant with Israel and Judah, our, our own great creator God. Israel and Judah know their history and their God, and they're, they're aware of his limitless power. We saw in some of the passages uh, in our first sermon on the new covenant, way back, that one of Jeremiah's burdens from God was that his people had forgotten the Lord their God. That was in Jeremiah 3, 21, 13.25, 18.15. Jeremiah keeps telling them, you've forgotten your God. You've gone to idols. You're starting to worship other things. You've forgotten him. But deep down, they knew his power, but they let that comforting knowledge slip from their grasp and their sinful pursuit of other gods. So in order to cement it indelibly on the minds of his hearers, Jeremiah ends the sentence of verse 35 by identifying God by saying, the Lord of hosts is his name. Interestingly, in Psalm 24, 1 to 10, David uses the same terminology as a sort of prophetic utterance regarding one who is surely Christ arriving at heaven in his ascension, especially in verse 10 where it says he's the king of glory. So Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. And just let me make a brief comment here. If, if, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but uh, the way that the, uh, the, the book of Psalms is constructed, if you look at chapter 22, 23, and 24, you've got a progression of, of Christ's life. You've got Psalm 22, which is well known as a crucifixion passage. Um, you've got Psalm 23, which is, is, could be talking about Christ going through the valley of the shadow of death. And then you've got verse 24 with his re resurrection and ascension. Very interesting. If you've never noticed that before, read those three, three, three Psalms and just get that picture in your mind that there's, there's something going on here, which is very important. Anyway, in Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10, Here's what it says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? And here's what Jeremiah said, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. He's talking about Christ here. So let's go back to Jeremiah 31. Verse 36, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Uh, one of the, I'm not trying to pick on Philip Rakin, but uh, he's got some quotes that just rubbed me the wrong way. One, he's been, he was a helpful commentator when I taught through Hebrews in Sunday school over the last five years or so. Uh, but I take exception to his covenant theological inter interpretation position on this passage of 35 to 37. He says of these verses, Jeremiah promised that the new covenant would be endless in duration. His point, which he cites, is this. The God of creation is also the God of salvation. Therefore, the new covenant in Christ is as reliable as the fixed, nature, the fixed laws of nature, if not more so, it's irrevocable. Now, by saying this, he's not exactly 
untruthful about the new covenant's content, but he's misleading the reader by saying that's the point of verses 35 to 37. It's not the point. The point of verses 35 to 37 is this. In the face of the promises and prophecies in God's wrath against Judah and Israel, the people of Judah already faced the threat of horrible catastrophe at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. They're already in the beginning phases of the siege against Jerusalem at this point. So they would wonder about these promises of God as they face death and captivity and exile and the certain destruction of Jerusalem. Will the nation survive or will it end up as ashes on the floor of history? Were verses 31 to 34 a promise of comfort only to appease them for now, but they wouldn't be around to see these promised blessings? Verses 35 to 37 answers that. Notice the focus. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. The focus then is not on the new covenant here. The focus is the permanent or forever survival of Israel as a nation, not the duration of the new covenant, which is ancillary to that. Then bypassing verse 37 for a minute, let's, if you're at Jeremiah 31, let's look at 38 to 40. We'll look at it a little later, but I just want you to get a, a picture in your mind of it here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city, he means the city of Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Gerub, and then shall turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the book Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. So, so what, we're, what we're seeing here is, is, is now talking about Israel. Uh, it, it, in fact, the last sentence that says, Once restored, Jerusalem shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore, forever. The fact that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, about 40 years after Christ's death, and it stayed out of Israel's control until 1967, proves that the new covenant was not in full force due to, during the New Testament era and awaits future fulfillment, although it was inaugurated when Christ died and rose again. And also notice at the beginning of the book of comfort here within Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah uh, 30, verses 1 to 9, here's what it says, talking now about, uh, about uh, especially Jerusalem. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. For behold, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and, of, and no peace. Ask now and seek, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there's none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. It's talking about a time well into the future. Same chapter, verses 18 to 22. Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall re be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. 
I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as, old, as, as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. The, their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out of their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. He's talking here about their Messiah will be there, the, the, the prince uh, that, will, that will rule from David's throne. And then just uh, one more brief passage, 33, 9 to 11. In this city, again talking about Jerusalem, shall to be, be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall bear all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and the, all the prosperity I provide, provide for it. So verse 36, Jeremiah 31, is a strong reminder of God's surety in caring for Israel. He will discipline them for a time, a long time, 70 years to start with and many centuries since, but he'll never forsake them. So back, let's turn back now, Jeremiah 31, verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored... Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So to add what's already been said, verse 37 now bolsters this point. God provides a proviso to go along with verse 36, a condition that if it could be accomplished by man, could mean that God would cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The condition is stated in the first part of the verse by the word if. This is 2023, 2027 years or so since Christ came to earth, and, and then you add hundreds of years back to Jeremiah's writings. To date, man has advanced in great leaps in technology and science, but still scientists claim they don't know where the heavens and the universe ends. They've discovered trillions of stars and billions of galaxies, but are not much closer to finding the end of the vastness of space than were Copernicus and Galileo when they began to search the heavens for scientific answers. In exploring the foundations of the earth, geologists have certainly made headway in understanding things like Earth's molten core, the plasticity of the mantle, tectonic plates and continental drift, and the variations of the hardness of the Earth's crust and its component materials, but they have literally only scratched the surface. Much of the volcanic activity and the forming of new crust takes place invisibly under the depths of the oceans, so that knowledge about continent forming is only accessible to a very few well-funded scientific teams, and although many theories have been put forth, no one really has a handle on what makes the world tick. Never mind the fact that we're living on a 26,000 diameter, mile diameter ball of rock, dirt, and water, with gravity holding us to the surface of whatever gravity is, while that globe spins around its axis at about 1,000 miles per hour, hurtling through space on an elliptical tra trajectory around the sun, which takes 364 and a quarter days to accomplish, tilting mathematically to change the seasons, all of it based on mathematical predictable precision, powered by Christ according to Colossians 1.17 and Hebrews 1.3. The vast underworld of earth will never be fully explored, no matter how long we have before Christ returns to wrap up history as we know it. But based on these impossible conditions ever being met, God now declares in verse 37, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. It's never going to happen. He's never going to cast off Israel. What a God of grace he is. Then back in Jeremiah 31, 
just read 38 to 40, so I won't read it again. But this is talking about the restoration of Jerusalem. All, all of this support, these verses are support for the new covenant. They're not part of the new covenant, they're support for it. In other words, God is showing you, you can trust me because here's why. And, and this is what he's been doing in these, in these verses. So the last three verses of our text start off with that eschatological formula. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This formula has been seen three times since verse 27 in this chapter. What's added here logically follows that if the new covenant is permanent, once it arrives in full for Israel, and if the nation is permanent, then it must have a geographically permanent location in which it resides. And if it's a geographical nation with borders, which the Bible clearly says it will be, it must have a capital city, and that city soon to be destroyed by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, will be rebuilt. A renewed covenant, therefore, basically demands a new Jerusalem enlarged and permanently resettled. And that's what these verses are telling us. It's clear from verse 40. Excuse me. I'm starting to have a hard time making words. So it's clear from verse 40 that the rebuilt city, described here in some detail, is not as much a benefit to the people as it is to the glory of God. Dedicated and sanctified as separated to him according to verse 40, even the valley and dead bodies and ashes, which is probably a reference to the valley of Hinnon from Jeremiah 7.31, which says this, And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come to mind. Another one of the things that the, the punishment is coming upon them for because they had done that. So that even now, these areas now polluted by the evil or wicked people at that time will be dedicated to the Lord. And it's certainly an important, an important point that for the duration of our continuing study of the new covenant to realize that up until now, historically, no rebuilt city of, by Israel has ever survived. The new temple rebuilt later on after the exiles return from captivity as recorded in Nehemiah and Ezra is not this rebuilt Jerusalem because it too was later almost completely destroyed in 168 BC. And the temple rebuilt in part by Herod the Great, which was extant in, in Jesus' time, was also later, later raised along with the city in 70 AD at the hands of Titus the Roman general and his mercenary army. And it late... It, it, the city itself has, not, has been rebuilt since 70 A.D., uh, certainly not by Israel, uh, and no new Jewish temple has, has been. And in fact, the Israel that now occupies at least most of Jerusalem shares it amidst Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslim mosques, one of which now occupies the original Temple Mount. So the possibility of a new Jewish temple ever built there, being built there remains something only God himself can arrange providentially uh, or miraculously. Uh, it's just not going to happen. And um, Israel in the land has been in that land now since 1948 and, and is certainly not living in the land in peace and comfort, which is one of the things that says in the lead up to the new covenant, it says that's going to have to take place before the new covenant is in effect. They have to be living in not only in comfort, but in safety. They're not in safety right now. I mean, they're at war right now. They have been for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and it's not looking better. In fact, now, now where it started off against the terror, terrorist uh, groups, uh, uh, Hezbollah and, uh, uh, and, I forget the, and Hamas, 
uh, and but it's it's now expanded because now other countries are getting involved. Russia's, Russia's talking about getting involved. Iran is certainly going to be involved. Uh, there's a number. Tim was just telling me this morning off the news. There's a number of nations that surround Israel are now starting to to want to share in this and start to attack Israel because they hate Israel. Uh, and what's really interesting about this when it was just when it was just Hamas and Hezbollah, I wasn't too concerned. But this is starting to shape up like Ezekiel 38 and 39. If you're familiar with those passages, that's, that's the huge war that's, gonna, that's going to probably start the tribulation period. Not Armageddon, that ends the tribulation period. But, but, the, but the war that, that may be shaping up with all the countries getting involved against Israel, it's starting to look very interesting, very interesting and scary. But, but the whole point of what I'm saying here and that what these verses are telling us don't worry about Israel. God is going to have, they're going to be around. Whether they win this war or lose this war, in God's plan, Israel is going to remain a nation, and they're going to be a viable nation, and they have an important role to play in the future kingdom that's, that's coming. So the promise of their peace and comfort is not in play now either. So you, you can forget that the new covenant is in force right now for Israel. So to me... It's not a viable hermeneutic to apply the prophecy under the normal rules of prophecy to a merely spiritual, heavenly, or symbolic Jerusalem. The details are much too easily interpreted literally. So although within the current geopolitical and religious atmosphere in the world that seems to disallow the possibility of any temple being built on the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, somehow God will fulfill his promise to his people. The new Jerusalem described in Revelation 21, 9 and following is not the one described here either. That one comes down from heaven, fully built and ready to inhabit for heaven. The only viable option that remains is a millennial temple, which is the one uh, that is described in, e in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, which many people brush off. Oh, wait, that can't mean, why, why would there be a temple in the millennial kingdom? Christ died and that, that's where salvation comes from. He's not going to set up the, uh, the Mosaic covenant again. But that's not what that's about. If you read those, that passage clearly, it's talking about a temple the size of which has never existed yet, but it seems to be references to it in, in so many of the minor prophets in, in, uh, in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. Uh, all these things point towards there's going to be a temple when, uh, when the Antichrist comes because he's going to defile it during the tribulation period. So there's going to be a temple there at some point. It could be the one in Ezekiel 40 in the following. But I would challenge you to read that fascinating passage of God's word. Try to understand what else it could be describing except a millennial kingdom, kingdom temple. According to Daniel 9 and Matthew 24, a temple will exist in the end times. So we're going to attempt... Lord willing, in my next sermon, to pursue some of the eschatological aspects of that in, in, in my next sermon. So, Lord willing, whenever that is. So I don't want to wander too far off the point here. So, so far we have managed to answer a number of questions regarding the New Covenant. Uh, but I've not yet answered the question regarding when the New Covenant will reach its final and full culmination. Or culmination. We've hinted at this, but aside from seeing when it was inaugurated, and then we can thank Luke Luke for that. Luke 22, verses 19 to 20, tells, tells us that it is, in fact, inaugurated. Um, verse 19, Luke 22, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
So you've got that verse in the New Testament telling us when it's inaugurated. Down in verses 28 to 30, this, this now tells us not too many verses later that what's, when, when's it going to be in full force? Down the road. Here's what Luke says. You were those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assigned to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That hasn't happened yet. That's still in the future. When's that going to happen? I would tell you that in my understanding of Scripture, it's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. When Christ returns the second time and sets up the kingdom, that's the kingdom. That's, that's when then these, these disciples will sit on, on thrones with him as he rules that kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I, mean, I can't see it meaning anything else. There's, there's, there's nothing that's happened in the, in the last 2,000 or so years since Christ left to see, say that it's in force, although some people say it is. The, the pieces aren't in place. It can't be enforced. So the inauguration of the new covenant allowed Gentiles to share in the blessings of the new covenant, but no participation for them in the land promise aspect of it, and that's important. It's full realization for Israel, those to whom we've seen it was promised, is reserved for a time yet future to us. So I just want to close with, uh, with a few quotes here that I thought were significant to help help piece this together, I think. Bruce Ware, one of my favorite theologians, he's always very helpful, but he, uh, he says this on, on the subject of who benefits from the new covenant. When one considers what Jeremiah said in the new covenant promise of 31, verses 31 to 34, there simply is no hint that this promised future covenant would apply to any beyond the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The intended meaning of the human offer, it would, author, it would seem, is restricted to Israel. Yet notice that Jeremiah does not say that only Israel will be included. So while the human author spoke of the new covenant as being made with Israel, the divine author intended this and more. God may do more than his promise explicitly states, but he cannot because he will not do less or other. So the intended meaning of the human author is restricted, applying it to Israel alone, while the divine author intends to apply the new covenant to Israel and to Gentiles who will become circumcised of heart through faith in Christ, Romans 2, 28 to 29, he cites, even though only the fulfillment with Israel is explicitly announced in Jeremiah's text. Don't 100% agree with him on, on a couple of things there, but I think he's got the general flavor of, of, it, of it there. Because we are certainly, we can't say that, there are some who say the, the, that the church never experiences any of the blessings of the covenant. But we do, because we're saved when our heart is changed and the Holy Spirit comes into our life and we're saved. That is one of the blessings of the new covenant, and so certainly that applies to us. But I'm also going to quote here Kenneth Barker. Uh, He's got a couple of quotes here. He says, In context, the promise of the new covenant occurs in the book of comfort or consolation section of Jeremiah, namely chapters 30 to 33, which basically depict the future messianic kingdom. Chronologically, a time of trouble for Jacob, which is the tribulation period, uh, in 34 to 11, is followed by Israel's return to the land in 30, 12 to 31, 30, which is followed by their experience of the new covenant in 31, 31 to, 31 to 40. Thus, the prophetic setting of the new covenant announcement is Israel's final restoration to the land after the tribulation period and at Christ's second coming to the earth. I would agree with that 100%. Significantly, the same sequence is discernible in Matthew 24 and in Revelation 6 to 20. 
This reveals when the new covenant is to be folded in the life of Israel as a whole, and such an understanding is confirmed by Zechariah 12, 10 to 13, and by Romans 11, 11, 29 to 29, which we looked at. Then a few pages later, he adds this. It's my belief that within God's comprehensive purpose and unified program, the present form of his kingdom is moving toward the grand climax of history when that kingdom will find expression in a visible reign of Christ that will include elect Israel, the true church, and elect Gentiles who may not fit into either of the two previous categories. The future kingdom of history will then merge into the eternal kingdom and the Lord God omnipotent will rule forever. This overall program of God is all of grace from start to finish, including the Old Testament part of it, and will redound to the praise and glory of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. So brief answer to the question that I said I wanted to answer. The kingdom comes when Christ returns and sets up the kingdom. The kingdom is not existing now, although blessings from that kingdom do exist now, and we're receiving some of them, but it remains for the future to be fully viable as, as God's kingdom because then Israel will be restored to the land. They'll be restored to ruling with Christ. Christ will be sitting on David's throne. And, and all the other things that are promised, including the, the time of it, which only Revelation 20 tells us is a thousand-year period, uh, and, and, and all the things that, that we hear about in Revelation 20, which I'll, I'll probably, Lord willing, I'll bring up next time. But just, just a fascinating thing to, 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 to see that so many people hate Israel so much that they say, there's no way God's ever going to bless them again. And yet his word says he will. And so we have to look at that and understand that we're dealing with a God of incredible grace. Because we know, and in our minds we think, they don't deserve it. But then think of your own life. Do you deserve God to save you? No. We don't, we don't do anything to deserve his salvation. All we can, all we can do is pray and, and cry out to him, knowing that we, we need to repent and we need him to change our, change our hearts and change our lives. And that's what he's doing in the nation of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this, uh, this section of Scripture and all the sections that we looked at. We pray that you would help us to... Uh, to understand this because it is a very important concept in the word of God to understand when the kingdom is coming uh, to realize that uh, it's not here yet and to realize but that your promise will be fulfilled and Christ will return and he will set up this kingdom pray that you would uh, just really give us the faith and the strength of faith to see that as, as, a, as a future hope and joy for us and to realize that uh, your word is full of hope even if, even if your word also has wrath in it, it's full of hope. And we count on your grace, and we ask for your favor in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.